So I am amazed by people who can see what most of the rest of us cannot see. Artists who can look at a blank canvas and they can see that what they want to paint, what they want to do, and then they paint this scene, they paint this landscape that rivals the beauty of the real thing. Or a, a craftsman who can look at a piece of wood or metal or clay, can only see it in his own mind's eye. None of the rest of us can see it until we watch him chisel it or mold it into being. You know, some people can see what the rest of us just can't see. Like all the professionals on HGTV. Have you watched this channel? It's amazing. I love these guys. Whether they're designing a space or flipping a house or maybe taking a fixer-upper and turning it into a, a dream home for some homeowner, it's all dependent on someone who can see beneath the obvious, who can see beneath the current circumstances and see what most of the rest of us just cannot see. I'm especially amazed by people who can see talent and future and potential in people who most of, the, most of the rest of us would just overlook. Like the baseball scout who can look at a young player who's blossoming in their team's farm system, knowing he's going to make it, he's going to be a superstar. Or maybe it's the music instructor who sees a budding protege in the making while they squeak out you know, some, some tune. Or maybe it's an acting coach who uncovers someone, the next great star who has worked undiscovered in small markets and small productions, but they see something. I'm especially enamored by those who can see in people what the rest of us just cannot and do not see. See, the ability to see what others do not is an awesome skill. It's an awesome thing. It's actually a talent and ability that Jesus gives to those who choose to follow him. He puts his spirit inside us, which allows us to see like he sees. Jesus allows his, uh, his followers to see circumstances and people and opportunities in a different way. He enables us to see like he sees. And this ability to see like Jesus is what I want to focus on this morning in our study. So this is the third week. We're looking at some of the questions that God has for us. We've already articulated. We have tons of questions for God. He's turned the tables on us, and he's got questions for us, for those that love him and follow him and worship him. We looked, first week, we looked at the first questions that God had for Adam and Eve. Right after they disobeyed and they trusted their own faulty human reasoning. And then last week, we looked at the most important question Jesus ever asked his original disciples, one concerning his identity, who do you say I am? The same question actually posed to us, important how you answer that because it determines where you spend eternity. It determines if you spend eternity with God or separated from him. Pretty important question. And this week, I want to I study the last question Jesus has for some of his followers, while he's going to his Passion Week, the final week of his life in Jerusalem. It's not the final question Jesus asked his followers. The truth is there's tons during that week. But I want to focus on the one before that fateful week in Jerusalem. I want, to, I want to focus on the last question Jesus asked some of his followers en route to that fateful week. So I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. 
in your Bible or your device. You can follow along. We'll have some verses on the screen. But as you get there, I'll do as usual. I'll just set the context for you. Here's the action. Again, we're very late into Jesus' ministry, just a couple of weeks, not even that, until his crucifixion and resurrection. And Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem, and he is a man on a mission. He's on his way to celebrate Passover, to publicly proclaim to the crowds that he's the Messiah, that he's the one and once and for all Passover lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world, to purchase salvation for all who would believe in him. In fact, we're going to celebrate that truth at the communion table a little bit later in this service. So we're a couple of weeks away from his crucifixion, resurrection, and the disciples and Jesus and a whole group of followers are making their way into Jerusalem for the annual Passover feast. On this road trip, somewhere along the way, Jesus stops and and calls his disciples together and says, in a matter of days, once they arrive in Jerusalem, Jesus was going to be betrayed, condemned, and put to death. This was not going to be your typical Passover celebration. He also predicted that he would, uh, he would rise from the, the dead, but just like the other times he talked about his death and resurrection, the disciples didn't get it. They couldn't comprehend what he was talking about. So they just let it go, not really realizing what he was talking about or what was going to happen. So we'll begin our reading in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who, while those who followed were afraid. Again, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. But three days later, he will rise. He's giving them a, a, a look into what's going to take place this week, this Passion Week, when they get to Jerusalem. So Mark, the author of this account, now tells two stories, two stories back to back that happen en route to this Passover feast, this this week in Jerusalem. We'll continue reading in verse 35, Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Stop for a second. Does that sound cold and inappropriate to anyone else besides me? I mean, think about it. Jesus just told them that he was going to suffer and die and be tortured, and these two characters come up, and they say, we want you to do something for us, Jesus. I mean, and Jesus gave details about his upcoming agony, right? He gave some pretty graphic details to these men, his, his best friends. Remember what he said in verse 34? They will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. It says, and then the two brothers, James and John, came to him and said, we want you to do whatever we ask. How cold and insensitive is that? I mean, that is so arrogant. That is so self-centered, especially given the timing. No concern for Jesus' plight. No like, hey, we're with you, Jesus. We got your back. Not even, well, that sounds rough. Is there anything we can do? Any way we can help? Nothing. None of it. 
just an inappropriate, selfish request by two brothers that centers around them and their plans and their ideas, their agenda, nothing to do with Jesus. I mean, that is, it could not be more inappropriate given the timing. And they come and say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus, we want a rubber stamp yes before we even give you details. I mean, you know what happens? This is what a kid does when he asks his parent for something when he knows the request is out of line, right? I want a yes, just say yes, and then I'll tell you what it is. It's, and it's exactly what these brothers are doing. Jesus gave the only appropriate response without dismissing their request altogether. Jesus in verse 36 says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And the brothers say, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. This request is totally inappropriate. Not only was the timing bad, but the request is an is inappropriate one. These two brothers are asking for prime positions in the coming kingdom. They're asking for positions of rank and honor, prestige and power. You know what they're doing? They're making a behind-the-scenes grasp for greatness. They're beating the other 10 to the punch. They want these positions. They want big-time roles in the coming kingdom. They did hear that part, coming kingdom, without understanding all the details. They didn't understand the whole suffering, mocked, spit on, tortured, killed thing. They heard coming kingdom, and they said, we want those two spots. A presumptuous request. It's a, it's a grasp for greatness. You know what? They think greatness comes with power and position. So Jesus basically says, you don't know what you're asking can you really follow in my footsteps? Can you really endure what I'm about to endure? Because they didn't understand, but you know what they answered? We can. Again, arrogant, presumptuous, no clue what they were asking for. So the brothers, want the, they wanted these positions of greatness, right? Power, position, prestige. They think it comes with authority. You know, you can't blame them. It's what they've seen. I mean, it's what they know. This is how the world defines greatness. And so... They just want to get theirs. It reveals how they saw and defined greatness. And so before we're too hard on these brothers, before we kind of just you know, lay them out because they're just so presumptuous, so arrogant, so self-centered, I'm here to tell you that many of us have made similar requests to these two brothers, right? It's the bless me, God. Bless me and I'll serve you. Bless me. Give me you know, set me up good and I'll treat you good. I'll respond good. I'll serve you well. You give me a situation where I agree to it and I'll flourish and I will serve you well, Jesus. That's my offer. I know it's the offer I made to God. I'm embarrassed to say that's exactly what I did. I was living my dream. My wife and I, newly married, living in Hawaii, playing golf for a living. You know, we, we loved our life. Who wouldn't? It was all about us. And I made this wonderful, arrogant, selfish offer to God. God, you use me any way you see fit from my comfortable position here. You bless me, you give me success, and I'll serve you well. I'll be your right-hand man. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? I look back, sounds a lot like James and John, doesn't it? So Jesus realizes he's going to need to do some some teaching to redefine what greatness looks like in the kingdom. And not just the two, he needs the 12 because the other 10 became indignant with James and John. They realized they had beaten him to it. 
So Jesus, seeing his 12 kind of team that he's built for three years kind of unravel a little bit, he says, I I need to do some core value teaching before we get to Jerusalem. So Jesus calls the 12 together to teach them, show them what it means to be great according to kingdom values as opposed to the world's values. So we pick up the reading in verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is the core of the core of Jesus' teaching. You want to sum up Jesus' teaching? This is it. It's this paragraph right here. He speaks directly to James and John and their desire for greatness. And it's as direct as, as he speaks to you and me about what greatness looks like. You want to be great, Jesus says, you become the servant of all. You want to be first? You become the slave to everyone then. Greatness is found in serving. It's not position or power or authority or prestige. Greatness is when you serve, right? Verse 45, Jesus shares his own personal mission statement. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus redefined greatness for these disciples and for us once and for all. He said greatness in the kingdom, not position, not power, not honor, not authority. It's not about getting others to serve you. It's about becoming a servant to all. It's about serving others. The truth is you're never more like Jesus than when you serve. So then Mark takes us to the second story he includes in chapter 10 of his account. And we pick up the reading, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. So then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. They're getting really close now, people. They're 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. They're less than a day's walk away, and the crowd gets this focused determination that Jesus has to get to the holy city for this passion week he's about to endure. But a blind beggar heard that Jesus was passing by. And so he shouts to get Jesus' attention. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You know what? This guy knows who Jesus is. The disciples aren't sure. The crowd certainly doesn't know. But this beggar gets it. You know how we know? That term, son of David, that's a Jewish messianic term. It's as if he's saying, Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on me, a beggar. In verse 48, you know what it says? It says that the the crowd rebuked him and told him to be quiet. That is a nice, biblicized way of saying they said, hey, shut up. Pipe down, old man. The teacher's got important business in the city. 
way more important than listening to the likes of you. You just be quiet, old man. That's what they said. But to the surprise of everyone, Jesus stops and says, go get that guy. We'll pick up the reading in verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Note that Jesus stops for the one. He stops for the one the other crowd was saying, pipe down, that would pass by. The one the crowd would dismiss. He stops for the one. That should tell you something about our Savior's heart. And note that the text says that the blind man came to Jesus. Jesus did not go to him. Well, why is that important? Well, a blind man's going to need some help getting through the crowd to stand in front of Jesus, don't you think? I mean, who do you, who do you think Jesus would ask to go call the blind man, to go get the blind man and bring him to Jesus? Probably a couple of guys who were in close proximity to Jesus. Probably a couple of guys he has a relationship with. Maybe the ones he's, who are in the process of learning about being a servant. Perhaps it's a little on-the-job training for a couple of guys who Jesus has been teaching about greatness in the kingdom and what it looks like. Maybe a couple of guys who could go get the blind man and bring him to Jesus. I imagine it went something like this. Hey, James, John, go get my new friend. Bring him to me. The brothers go and get a blind man and bring him directly in front of Jesus. He now stands directly in front of Jesus, and James and John have a front row seat. How do we know that? Well, it would be a total guess if it were not for verse 51. Because in verse 51, Jesus asks this question. He says to the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? Seems like a ridiculous question, doesn't it? Jesus, who's healed scores of blind men over the last three years, now has one standing in front of him, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Makes no sense. Unless the question was never for the benefit of the blind guy in the first place. See, the question should, that question should sound familiar to you and me, because if you go back 15 verses... These two brothers make an inappropriate request of Jesus. We want you to do whatever we ask. Jesus' response, what do you want me to do for you? And the brothers arrogantly ask for positions of power and prestige and a play for greatness. And now in verse 51, Jesus has a blind man speaking directly in front of him. He purposely uses the exact same words, the exact same question, now spoken to a blind man but directed to James and John. You know what happens? That question triggers the synapses in the brothers' memory banks, and now in that question, James and John hear how arrogant, how selfish their request for power was. 
They're getting it. That question, in that question, against the backdrop of soon-to-be healing, James and John now hear and understand what Jesus had been teaching about greatness is found in serving, in serving the least of these, like this blind beggar. In that question, James and John now hear and understand what Jesus meant when he said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The brothers finally get it when they hear that question. You know what happens? They hear that question and their minds start to race and all of a sudden, all of Jesus' teaching, all his modeling, all his serving, it now comes washing over them like a flood and they get it when they heard Jesus pose that question, what do you want me to do for you? You know what the blind man says? The only appropriate response from a blind guy, he says, I want to see. Well, of course he does. Of course he does. Right? It's an obvious response for a man who physically cannot see. But it's a life-altering request from someone who wants to follow Jesus, to be like him, to represent him. You know what it does? Jesus stands in front of all who choose to follow him, and ask that question, what do you want me to do for you? And the only appropriate response from someone like you and me is I want to see. I want to see like you see. I want to see people with the value and worth that you see in them. I want to see opportunities and circumstances through your eyes. I want to see what others don't, Jesus. I want to see like you see. See, make no mistake, that request is is an admission that you are blind. You are blind and you need the Savior to help you see people and circumstances and opportunities the way he does. You need new eyes because you and I have probably defined greatness as power and prestige, as honor and authority, as getting people to serve you. But the Savior now gives you and I new eyes to see like he sees. And we recognize that and admit that we can no longer lean on our own understanding, but we need him to show us and lead us and guide us so we can begin to see like the Savior sees. You know what happens? You'll start to see like Jesus does. You'll start to see people with value and worth who you formerly would have passed on by. You'll start to see people as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd who are desperate for a touch from the Savior, and you're the one to to be his hands and feet. See, you'll start to see serving people not as a burden, but as opportunities for greatness. And you'll leap at the opportunity because you know you're never more like Jesus than when when you serve others, especially those who go unnoticed or passed by from the crowd. See, those are the people who are ripe for a touch from Jesus. They're ripe for you showing the love of Christ. So Jesus asks you and me, what do you want me to do for you? And the only appropriate response from followers of Jesus is, I want to see. I want to see like you see. So as important as that question is, what do you want me to do for you? There's something more important you need to understand, and it's what Jesus has already done for you. It's what he's done for you. That's why we celebrate communion here. 
It's a reminder for what Jesus has already done on our behalf. We celebrate because Jesus was pounded to a wooden cross, took the hit that you and I deserve, and in doing so, shed his blood, and our sins were washed away. He took what we could not do so that we could have our salvation secured and our redemption purchased. It's what Jesus has already done for us. See, the Passover lamb, the once and for all Passover lamb, has come to take away the sin of the world, your sin and my sin. It's an awesome truth. You need to know that today as we go to the communion table. It's what Jesus has done. It's not what you do. You just need to believe it. You just need to receive what he's already paid for. And it was his death on the cross, his blood shed for you, that purchased your redemption, that wiped your slate clean, that made you sin-free, and made you able to spend eternity with God the Father and Jesus because of what he's done. That's what we celebrate today. Mm -hmm.